0: I want to thank everyone for coming on. This is the People's School for Marxist-Funders Studies, May 9th. By the way, today is the victory over fascism, May 9th in Europe, led by the socialist countries, the Soviet Union. I want to remind everybody about that. This is the class on the history of the communist movement in the United States, specifically the history of the PCUSA, where we came out of, where we're going, and how we're different than other groups, other parties in the left. It's important to know who we are and why we are and our history. And tonight we're going to be discussing chronologically the period of the 70s, the late 70s, and the period of the 80s, hopefully up until 91. So I'm going to go review some of the earlier period, in the 70s. Our history. So the old, we call it the old because they're still around, much smaller number, nowhere near as involved as they used to be. But the old CPUSA, which we have come out of, to this day, they're celebrating their 100th anniversary in Chicago. They started in 1919. During the 70s, the CPUSA had come out of the McCarthy period finally as early as 1964, 65, 66. So much so that we were not around when the New Left was developed and gave birth to the New Left in this country. They called it New Left, N-E-W, Left. And they called the other groups, which were the original groups, they called them the Old Left, which at that time, I followed that position, but I see how ridiculous that was. It should have been not the New Left and the Old Left, But the real left and the non marxist Leninist left, which came up later on, groups like Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, led by Stokely Carmichael. So the period of the 70s was a rebirth of the communist movement, so much so that at that time, the OCP still had about 20, 25,000 members, which is a lot. That doesn't mean they were cadre. Many of them were senior citizens, old timers, who couldn't do too much activity anymore, but they were heavily involved in groups like National Council of American Soviet Friendship, groups like National Anti-Imperialist Movement with African Liberation, groups like the U.S. Peace Council was reborn in 76, the YCL, the Young Communist League, was reborn in 1975. Re. Women for Racial Economic Equality was born during the 70s. So was Trade Unionists for Action and Democracy, TUAD, which put out a newspaper called Labor Today, and they were active in the trade union movement. They were also born in the 70s. So it was a rebirth. It was a period where new forces came to the Marxist Leninist movement. People like Angela Davis and groups and people like that, all new forces. James Steele most of them African American, and very predominant in the area of San Francisco, in California, Oakland, that period. In Staten Island, we reformed the club where I lived with four people. We haven't had a club here since the 50s, 1950s, the McCarthy period. So throughout the country, this was going on. There was also a time of growth with the Maoist movement. So you had the New Left, you had the regrowth of the CP, the Maoist Movement, and also Trotskyite Movement was strong, very strong in this country. During the Vietnam War, they were in control of one of the coalitions called NPAC, National Peace Action Coalition, and they were involved with that. The communists and the other groups, the pacifists and the other groups were involved with a group called People's Coalition for Peace and Justice. So we had two big coalitions that were fighting against the war in Vietnam. And it was a period of upheaval throughout the country. It was the period culturally, music had changed. I'm not a music person from that period, but folk music, Joan Baez, Arlo Guthrie, who was the son of Woody Guthrie, and Pete Seeger had a comeback in that period.
1: The Grateful Dead. Jerry Garcia and The Grateful Dead.
0: I myself wasn't into that music, so I don't remember it. But believe it or not, I was a carpenter person with my politics. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Carpenters.
1: Aaron Carpenter.
0: Yeah, the Carpenters. They were a favorite of Richard Nixon, by the way. He invited them to the White House, and he loved them, their music. So it was a protest music. It was also a lot of movement with marijuana at the time. So it was a period of upheaval in the country. But the left grew. It was a period of left growth. In Europe, the same thing was going on. It was a period of left growth. In Greece, the junta was still in power, was coming to an end. By the time of the 70s, the fascist junta that took over in Greece in the 60s was coming to an end. The party in Greece started to grow. Also in China, it was during the time of the Cultural Revolution. Throughout the world, there was an upheaval of the left. So it was a real important period. Then came the 80s, and the 80s were very important. I'll tell you why they were important to us. Because much maligned, and people may disagree with this, but when I went to the Soviet Union in 1976, what I noticed there, everybody was proud of the material goods. Later on, history called it the golden age of socialism. That's what history called it. And it goes along with the theory that when capitalism can no longer deliver the material goods that it used to deliver, people will turn to the left. And that's what was happening in the Soviet Union was the shelves were full. They were helping the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese had won in 75, thanks to the tanks and the anti-aircraft guns that were given to them by the Soviets. And so it was a period of excitement and people in the Soviet Union looked and felt that each year was going to be better than the year before. Large numbers of Americans were traveling to the Soviet Union, large numbers, and were seeing what real socialism was in reality. Now, the period of the 80s was also a period in the Soviet Union of conflict. It was a period when one leader after another was in power for a year or two. Remember now, The old guard, you heard the term old guard. Well, it was very evident in the Soviet Union that the age of the people in the Politburo was considerably older. Many of them were from the revolutionary period. Most of them were from the revolutionary period. And some of them, in 1920s, they were just coming into the communist movement. And so here we are in 1982, 83. One after another got sick, and another one came up to leadership until finally 1985. And to my mind, 1985 was the dividing line. It was the beginning of the end of the house that Stalin built after World War II. The people's democracies in Eastern Europe, remember during the Brezhnev period, countries in Africa claimed they were going on the socialist road, Mozambique, Angola, So, other countries like that. And the Palestinians were coming of their own. Everybody was pushing for a two-state solution at the time. There was a Geneva peace Accords that was beginning to be talked about. So it was a very promising time for the whole left. In this country, we had something called, I don't know if it was during that period, partisans of the Labour Party began to galvanize. We had groups like Labour Party Advocates.
1: Late 80s, early 90s, yeah. Yeah,
0: right. So it was a period of promise. We actually felt that we could have a Labour Party here based in the unions, which would be a step ahead of what we had before. Every country in the Western world had a social democratic Labour Party, except this country. We didn't even have that. So that was the period of time. Then comes 85, Gorbachev. And I say that and I stop in silence after I say that name because that was the beginning of the end. At the United Nations, Gorbachev spoke, and he spoke about universal human values. And I remember many of us in the old party found it strange that here a person goes to the United Nations, has a chance to talk about socialism and what we're doing, and what he spoke about is human values. What he was really saying is that the bosses, the workers, we all have the same values. That there's really no big difference. That was one of the messages that came out of that. And, of course, terrestrika, which means restructuring, what that did to the Soviet economy, that from a period of full shelves, all the food, anything you could think was full shelves, cheap, 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 bread, same price in 1922 as it was in 1978, 1984. Bread was the same price. Imagine that, staple. And their bread was not like our bread, comrades. It was solid bread. You cut it with a knife. It wasn't air. It wasn't like Wonder Bread, full of air. So that's what I'm going to stop. Open up for questions of what I just said.
2: The change that came about with Gorbachev, it seems like there was turmoil in the U.S. party over the next five or eight years after that. Correct.
0: 100% yeah. correct. So much so that the Politburo, which they call the National Committee, was such in a flux that democratic centralism, they couldn't come out with a position. People like Gus, called the general secretary, and others were opposed to perestroika. But people like Angela Davis were supporting it. And so there was an influx and a confusion in the party. So Gus would send out these tapes. We had these little cassette tapes that all the clubs listened to. It was a great idea, actually, technologically at the time, that we listened to these tapes and we heard what the analysis of the General Secretary was of what's going on not only in the world but what's going on in the U.S. And he gave his view because his view was different. There was definitely a turmoil. And it affected all the parties, including the Cuban party. I'll give you an example. Cuba did not allow the perestroika magazines that were published in the Soviet Union to come in. They felt they were so poisonous so bad that it was counter-revolutionary. East Germany, GDR, did not allow Perestroika magazines to come in to Berlin or Leipzig or Dresden, any of the cities. So yes, you're correct.
2: Before we know that in Afghanistan there was revolution in Iraq, in Ethiopia, and in the United States, American-Soviet friendship so active, also Anniversary Tour was helped by Communist Party and the travel between United States and Soviet Union, that was when I sent a delegation to state and city officials to Soviet Union. And they were coming every year, so many of them, to United States. States and we were having such a communication, such a cultural exchange. Thank you.
1: I was probably in less than a year in the party when Gorbachev came in, so this transition was part of my political beginning. And I was reading today a book about Marxist materialism, and what I think of this era, to the Gorbachev, is that. They took some of the dialectics and even the historical materialism out of what the Soviet view was and what their aim was and masqueraded a counter-revolution by saying that it was going to be more democracy and more socialism. But what is more socialism? I thought they had socialism, so these are some of the reasons it sounded strange, as you said.
2: That's true. It's That's true, yeah. yes. Who was the general secretary of our party at the time, and what was he about? He was
0: interesting. And remember, he came up not during the Stalin period. He came up during the Khrushchev period. What does that mean? That means his worldview was heavily influenced by Khrushchev. People have to understand that. At the same time, his position on Stalin was interesting, because I remember we used to have these discussions. His position was that Stalin was neither good nor bad, that there were different aspects of him. And he had to have that view, because on one hand you had the Khrushchev people talking about the negative elements that happened during the Stalin period, and you had those that were talking about positive elements So he came through that position, and so that was him. Remember, to the end, he was never, never pro-Stalin. His position of Stalin was that there were good elements and bad elements, but that's it.
2: In the United States Party, there were people that supported perestroika? Yes. I want to understand why they would do that, because they were, at the time, principled Marxists, and they probably should have known better. They should have,
0: correct. I was saying that while I was in the party. I was saying, what's going on? And I was told by old timers, people like Joe Brandt, who was the editor of the Daily Worker, when we had the Daily Worker. And he was also the editor of a magazine I worked with him on called Korea Focus, had to do with, reported on DPRK. It was pro-DPRK. And I remember him telling me I was walking on thin ice With my opposition to perestroika what he meant by that was the possibility of people like me being expelled because what we saw so obviously others did not see how did they push it they were presenting perestroika as an advancement of lenin's building socialism the so-called more democracy more socialism which lenin talked about They took that and it was twisted. The democracy meant the freedom to criticize Soviet history, the freedom to criticize everything in the Soviet Union. That's what they used as their democracy, not what Lenin was talking about. They actually twisted it to make it look like they were supporting socialism. So the position in 1980 in Poland, solidarity, CIA funded, tried to overthrow the government. What did the Polish government do? They declared martial law, and they put down Solidarity, which is a normal thing for any government in power, especially a workers' government, to protect them against Western influence and Western spies. That was normal. Well, when Gorbachev came along, his people in Poland, because he had his people in Poland, what they were pushing was there's nothing wrong with Solidarity. Let's sit at the table with Solidarity. Let's take the state power away from the workers and peasants and give it to Solidarity to share with us. It was called plurality, pluralism. They were big on pluralism. So it was a thing that happened little by little.
3: Considering that the global balance of forces has shifted in the interest of the working masses of the planet because after recession of 2018, I think the whole global framework, including in the former Soviet law countries, the conditions of the working masses are declining every day. The so-called experimentation with democracy in Eastern Europe is just fruitless and everybody is pessimistic about their government. And I think the global situation has really drastically shifted in favor of the working class and the working masses, but there are no parties. Because the former Soviet Union was supposed to be the vanguard for humanity, and then China was supposed to be a bastion of socialism and a model for other countries. Right now, there is a total ideological vacuum everywhere, and I think the planet is surviving because of the decline of imperialism as a whole, not the struggles, not the struggles of the working masses and the industrial proletariat as perceived by Lenin. So I think the situation is really very bad because there is total ideological vacuum everywhere. You're
0: correct. I agree with you 100%. Yeah.
3: So what do you say about that? Because even the so-called Democratic Party Republicans, they are saying that they are socialists. The DSA, so-called Democratic Socialists of America, they are not going to bring about socialism because it's not going to be given on a silver platter Socialism is class struggle and is the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's not existent now. The whole global framework is really bad. I'm not pessimistic about the future, but it's very, very bad.
0: I'd like to just answer you, comment. Marx wrote about the struggle of the working class has ebbs and flows throughout history, ebbs and flows. And he discussed very clearly how the first chance was in the Paris Commune uprising in France where the workers and the peasants took over the government and it lasted 70 days before it was crushed by the bourgeois armies and it was drowned in blood. The next time it happened was in 1917 and that's quite a distance between 1800s and 1917. And at that time, it lasted more than 70 years. So there was ebbs and flows over the long period of time. The next time it happens, according to what Marx understands, it's going to be 700 years. So the fact that scientifically we have feudalism, then we have capitalism, then we have socialism, and then we'll have communism. Scientifically, we know that that is going to happen. Question is, when is it going to happen and how long? So that's what Mark said, that it's going to be ebbs and flows. But we know that historically we're correct because science tells us that the scientific history of the working class, how the class struggle developed. Now we're up to the perestroika period. Everything was dismantled in a period of two or three years. The sources I have of people who came to this country, I spoke to two of them, who came to this country, and they don't know each other, they're two separate people. They said the shelves were empty, they were starving. And I asked them, well, what period is that? And they said, oh, about 88, 89. <laughs> That's exactly my point, I tell them. You did not live in a socialist society, 88 and 89. It was already changing so drastically that they were following capitalist modes of production. When you have one factory competing with another factory and they're both making loaves of bread and one sells it for two copecks, another one sells it for three, each factory now was looking to outdo the next factory who was producing the same thing. Of course, that's contrary to centralized planning. When they had centralized planning, There was enough bread on all the shelves. Everybody admits that. But once perestroika, which means restructuring, really took effect, it took a few years. By the time 88, 89 comes along, there was no food on the shelves. And this is common understanding. But my position is that that wasn't even socialism anymore. They already had changed the apparatus of how it functions. The other thing is that 90 comes along. The Soviet Union was now questioned. Each of the republics now had the opportunity to have their right wing, their bourgeoisie, who was still underground. remember that, were able to surface. So one republic would fight against another republic. And if you picked up the New York Times in 1989, this is what you would see constantly. Things were so bad that if you remember what happened in China during the so-called Tiananmen Square uprising, where they were parading with a Statue of Liberty made of papier-mâché. I don't know if any of the young people know about this. Paper-mâché Statue of Liberty. A lot of them are sons and the daughters of party leaders. you see pictures of them with Nikon cameras. I saw so many of them taking pictures, marching. People who are not communists never experienced the hardships of working class They were protesting because they wanted to be like the U.S. And guess who their hero was? Gorbachev. They had pictures and platforms of Gorbachev carrying signs in Tiananmen Square. There was also left formation of that. They were singing the International. But the left information was not the leading force of the Tiananmen uprising. It was the right wing of Chinese society and elements within the Chinese party that were basically right of center. When I say right wing, I don't mean fascist. I mean right wing in a socialist society is different than right wing in a capitalist society. So, it was so bad that the Daily World, which was the organ of the Communist Party USA, Barry Cohn, who I knew, was their editor. His mother and father were diehard communists. They led the teacher's tour that I had been on to the Soviet Union, and they were diehard communists. Their son, who was groomed to be an apparatchik in the CP apparatus, his ideology was so bad that we called them red diaper babies, comrade. That means their parents were communists and they're red diaper babies. That's what we call them. But they're not like their parents at all. Nothing like their parents, a lot of them. So Barry Cohn writes an editorial in the People's World in which he attacks the Chinese government for trying to defend itself in the Tiananmen Square and sides with the counter-revolutionaries. I call it rot. The political rot was already settled in a lot of CPs. The next thing I wanted to mention is the uprisings that started. Poland was the first country. Then came Hungary. Then came Czechoslovakia. One of the last countries was the GDR. The counter-revolution succeeded. Aided, aided, aided by Gorbachev and his people. So when Gorbachev went to the Berlin 40th anniversary of the founding of the German Democratic Republic in Berlin, he's seen as kissing Erich Konica on both sides and reminded me, as I saw it, of the mafia. I'm Italian background. And one of the things the mafia does is before they kill you, comrades, they kiss you on both sides, hug you and kiss you and then within the next week you're dead. And I hate to say it, but that's similar to what happened with Gorbachev. How did it affect what was going on? Well, I'll give you an example. The Japanese Communist Party, which already had started to become revisionist to the core that you can't believe, they went all the way to the right. To this day, they're the worst Communist Party in the world. The most right-wing Communist Party is the Japanese Communist Party. 1991. We had a convention in the United States of the CPUSA. And the Gorbachev people split at that convention. You could tell you about it. He was there. Maybe he should tell you a little bit about it, how nefarious they were, how they took property from the party, etc. And one of their leaders was Angela Davis. To this day, I can't stand her guts. I make no bones about it. I can't stand her. Angela Davis that I supported when she was in prison, that we all supported, went around to buildings collecting money, shaking cans, I used to call it, shake a can for Angela. And this is a person who the GDR and all the socialist countries helped when she was in prison. She turned their backs on them and supported the perestroika crowd. And so there was a big split in 1991. The group that left was called the Committees of Correspondence, COC, interested in the name, They have evolved, now they call themselves Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism, as if to say what we were calling for all these years in the communist movement, our democracy wasn't real democracy, that's what they were trying to say. So they left, and at that point the CP had to regroup, Gus was still the head of it, so as long as he was the head of it, things weren't that bad. In the year 2000 he died. And things went to hell after that. But I'm going to stop and open up for questions.
1: When we went to the convention, the famous convention where the split took place and the Committees of Correspondence was formed, the Committees of Correspondence, the name comes from U.S. history. There were committees of correspondence between the revolutionaries that wrote to each other, like Ben Franklin and Tom Paine Jefferson and all these people, John Adams, they all had these letters that they wrote back and forth, and so they called themselves the Committees of Correspondence. And you can read about that. There's an excellent trilogy of books by Dr. Apthecker, who was one of the ones that left the party with the COC, but his trilogy on early American history is very, very good. It's very thorough. Early Years of the Republic, the colonial era, and there's one more that I'm missing. But altogether, he was the party's theoretician for a very long time. And so a lot of the decisions and the things that happened inside the party happened because his thinking changed. The change because people felt that Gorbachev's perestroika was the correct way to go. And what that shows us, what we can learn from this, is that our parties have to be ideologically strong. We have to be theoretically strong. And to do that, we have to be in communication with the other parties around the world. And what's been missing from the communist movement since the end of World War II is the Comintern, where all the parties were represented in one communist organization, which was started by Lenin. And since that time, that hasn't existed, and so different trends have come up. Before perestroika, there was something called Eurocommunism, which was the parties in France and Spain and Italy got together, and they developed an anti-Soviet kind of socialism that they were pursuing. And so that became a very popular thing in Europe. And that's probably got a lot more to do with Perestroika than we'd like to admit, but point of making in all of this is that we have to study and we have to be sure that our ideology is strong, so that we don't fall into these traps, because these are traps set up by the enemy, and we have to be cognizant of that all the time. And so that's why we study. The struggle isn't over; there still is committees of correspondence. They still do put out a newspaper called Portside. They're still anti-communists. The party itself, the CPUSA, is still anti-communist. They don't like our group. They don't like what we're pursuing because we're pursuing the party of a new type. They don't agree with that philosophy. What was the ideological background of Gorbachev
2: and how did he arise to the position he rose to?
0: Good question. Him and his wife, especially his wife, she got her PhD listen to this. In Marxism Leninism. My question is what kind of courses did she take to come out with her and her husband writing a book, a couple of books, actually two of them. And one of them she writes with her husband and she says we were never communist. We were always social democrats. That's what she says. Which yeah. makes me wonder what kind of a degree did she have? What kind of paper was it worth it to call herself a Marxist Leninist? Number two, when he did his doctoral and his studies, his roommate was the economic minister for Alexander Dubček, Czechoslovakia, who in 1968 his government was pushing to withdraw Czechoslovakia from the Warsaw Pact. That was his open position, it wasn't hidden. And if you look at the map, Czechoslovakia was like a knife in the belly of the Soviet Union. So in 1968, he wanted to take them out, knowing fully well what happened with all these Warsaw Pact countries later on. What did 90% of them do? Join NATO. So I would not be surprised that Dubček people were pushing for joining NATO. But his economic minister, which was very similar to Perestroika, was roommates with Gorbachev. I felt that extremely interesting. So when you're roommates in a college, you share a lot of information, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of his information he got from Ducek from 1968. I'll leave it at that.
3: I think with all the due respect for Angela Davis, for the first time I heard about Uh, heroic struggle against corporate capitalism. As a black woman, as a young woman, I respect her single-minded resistance to the biggest imperialist mafia on this planet. And I think I give her a lot of credit there, but in terms of being a strong Marxist-Leninist or being a committed woman to Marxism-Leninism, I really do not believe she qualifies for it. And for the most part, I really believe that she's a radical intellectual academic some like that but i really do not believe that she was a committed marxist leninist even when she ran to be the vice president of the communist party with gas hall she may have had individual ambitions but i don't think she has any serious commitment to marxism leninism in the classic sense of the term because she doesn't qualify for it
0: all right thank you for that and you're correct
3: She she also supported Arab Spring. Recently, I saw her in a
2: documentary,
0: and
3: she supported Arab Spring, which was the CIA-inspired and instigated movement against legitimate governments in Africa, including Libya.
0: You're correct. And I want to mention that her teacher, before she became active in the CP, her teacher was Herbert Marcuse.
3: I remember him. Yes, yeah, he was not
0: a Marxist Leninist. He, he was anti-Soviet. A... Yes, he was anti-Soviet, and he was an independent Marxist. He called himself, and he was the father. Oh. He was the father of the new left of SDS. That's how I came in contact with him through SDS. So you're correct, mm-hmm. Cameron, You're definitely correct.
2: I remember one of the first things that was passed through on the USSR in Gorbachev's term was to lift the ECM blockade on Free Radio Europe, where they were Correct. jamming the radio frequencies that were trying to be blasted in ever since, what, the 50s? Yeah, 47, yeah, to, to convince people to turn up against their own legitimate governments. And, of course, they still do this in Asia. The same organization exists in Asia, but in Europe, they're partially successful at their job, no thanks to what Gorbachev and his lackeys did in the USSR in the late 80s.
0: Correct. Thank you. By the way, Radio Free Europe still exists to have a website. Their line has not changed.
2: you are talking about red diaper babies. They had Dr.
1: Spock telling people how to raise their kids. Did the communists ever have a Dr. Spock? Anton Makarenko. Yeah. The road I to can... life. Yes. Road to life. Monica and there's Manco. a book about raising children. There's a children's and, book.
2: But does he get into real politics?
0: You'll read it and you'll see. After the Civil War in Russia, you had all these orphans who were roaming the streets. Many of them were potential bandits and gangsters. And mm-hmm. he set up schools for them. And he tells about what they needed, etc., etc. So I suggest everybody who's interested in the pedagogy. Of educating young people to look at that book
1: as a red diaper baby myself, I was raised on a Dr Spock book, and so were all of the kids that I grew up around. They were all raised on that book
0: That's interesting, and he wasn't a communist, right?
1: No, but it was very popular because it was anti war was the philosophy. Right. Over philosophy was nonviolence and conflict resolution and teaching people how to solve problems without resorting to violence. That was the key to his whole thing.
0: I was brought up under that too. Many of us were brought up under that. My parents were not communists, they were anti communists, but they were liberals. And I was brought up under Doctor Spock also. And years later I was so happy to see him active in the anti Vietnam War movement. He became one of the leaders, actually, of the anti-Vietnam War movement. Benjamin Spock. I believe one of them was Don't Let the Baby Cry. Is that correct?
1: Something like that.
0: Something like that. Don't let the baby cry in the Mm -hmm. cradle because it'll scar him for life. Something like that. So we got up to the year 1991 and the split in the Communist Party. Now, the split was very effective. In New York, where I lived... I was involved with the Teachers' Caucus inside the United Federation of Teachers. We had a 1,000 members, and there was 80,000 members of the UFT. Out of the 80,000, we had a 1,000 dues-paying members of the Communist Party who were teachers in New York City. That may not seem like a lot, but it was a large number. And that 1,000 teachers led the caucus in the United Federation of Teachers which was a non-communist caucus, but it was led by communists. And it was called the Teachers' Action Caucus, TAC. And when we had the split in 91, out of the 1,000 teachers, three of them stayed in the CP, and I'm one of the three. We stayed in the CP. The others left and either left politics or they joined COC. So that's how influential the party was. And we have people on the left who say, it doesn't matter how big you are. It matters if you have the correct line. And that is so, so not true. You could have the correct line, comrades. But if you're three people and no one is listening to you, who really cares if you have the correct line? The rest of that sentence should be, we need masses to follow the correct line. That's what we need. So numbers do count. And like a fish in the water, we should be flowing in an area where we'd be able to have contact with people. So this idea that I heard from the ultra-left, the Maoist groups, oh, their CP is large, but they're irrelevant. This is what they said about us in the 70s and the 80s. That was so incorrect. We were involved with the trade union movement, the unions that came out against the war in Vietnam. There were a certain number of unions. They were all the unions that came from the left. I just found out recently that one of them was a member of the party. I don't know who told me this, but Whippensinger, who was a member of one of the big unions, okay, the International Association of Machinists. That's right. I never knew he was a leader in the party.
1: We just yep. thought he was a liberal. Personal friends of George Myers. I've seen him speak several times. So we're
0: up to the 90s. One thing led to another in the 90s, and the CP started to go downhill quickly. It didn't really recuperate. The group that was pro Soviet eventually became anti Soviet. That's the CP itself, led by Sam Webb and Bechtel. Bechtel told me face to face in 1994 in Staten Island when he came to visit our club. He said, you, Angelo, are still working to help rebuild the Soviet Union. He says, we're not doing that anymore. We left that. The young people today are born after that period. They don't even know what the Soviet Union was. So therefore, we're not going to discuss it. So I said to John Bechtel, who's now the leader of 23rd Street, of that party, I asked him, and says, well, can't we tell our membership this so that we will be clear on what we're doing, we can't do that. Why? Because the old people leave us in their wills and give us their homes, and we're in their wills, we get money from them. If we tell them we're not pro-Soviet anymore, they won't put us in their wills. This is a fact, comrades. This is a fact which I have on tape because I knew the guy was a scoundrel. I knew it because I dealt with him before. And so I taped the whole conversation, which I still have. So this is the level of character, and this was in 1993. Now it's 2019. But the point is, they went from bad to worse when Gus died in 2000. Then Sam Webb came across with his famous theory. He wrote a book called Reflections on Socialism. And in that book, he says the Soviet Union was never socialist. It was
1: post-capitalist.
0: Notice that term. Post-capitalist. In other words, after they got rid of capitalism, they never built socialism.
2: I highly recommend reading this book, Socialism Betrayed. By right. Roger and Thomas a Kenny. lot. A lot of the questions that are being asked can be answered by reading that book. It goes all the way back to Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, what happened, and I think things started going downhill right after Stalin died in 1953. Correct. There are also five theories towards the end of the book of why the Soviet Union collapsed. One of them was probably CIA or FBI infiltrating. Another one was Gorbachev. He basically didn't have a clear understanding of the world view in particular foreign policy and things of that nature. It also includes excerpts concerning Leonard Brezhnev in his term. Yeah. There were a couple of people in what is known as West Twenty Third Think Jarvis Tyner, right. uh, Joe Sims and a few other people on the party that added to that. And the authors go into at the beginning how much research was put into this book
0: Thank you. I want to add that International is the publishing house of the CPUSA. One of the things that I found very interesting, the problems we're having with the Taliban in Afghanistan, how that problem was created by the United States, not by the Soviet Union, but by the United States, and most people don't even know about it. I came across some information by New World Review, which had excellent article on Afghanistan, the revolution they had in 1978 was called the Soar Revolution, S-E-U-R, and yep. how that revolution changed the life of Afghanistan and how the United States then became involved.
1: There's also an excellent book by Philip Bonofsky, War in Afghanistan, or Afghan War, or something like yes. that. CIA, Secret War in Afghanistan. If you get that book, you'll see. The whole thing was created by the United States. Can you tell the others about the vote in the Politburo when Gorbachev was chosen?
0: It was a matter of one or two votes.
1: He said it was one vote, the deciding vote. vote was Kosygin.
0: Right, Kosygin was the deciding vote to choose Gorbachev as the General Secretary. So Kosygin himself, who came along during the Khrushchev period, is very questionable I hope we learned a lot of information tonight, especially the young people who don't know any of this. So I'm going to end the class.
2: Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.